When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for the month of July 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined here today by the critic and host of Slate's working podcast, Jacob Brogan. Hey, Jacob. Hello, hello. Um, And by Slate's senior editor and former czar of the book review, Dan Coyce. Hi, Dan. Hey, guys. Our book today is about adventures in far-flung lands, and you guys are both in far-flung lands, right? Uh, we are, yeah. Dan is farther flung than I. We've been flung far, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, where are you? I'm, I'm in my childhood home in Oregon, and I'm looking out on uh, rolling hills that are blanketed with wild blackberry bushes that are being uh, picked away at by deer uh, of all ages, and it is uh, truly bucolic. Uh, oh, a hummingbird just literally hopped past my window. Uh, I am spookily staring out at a beautiful beach in Costa Rica that is protected by a reef a ways out to shore and is close to the mouth of a river, so it hmm. seems perfectly safe at low tide. <laughs> Are your children swimming in those waters? No, to keep them safe, uh, they're on the internet. That is where they should be. Yeah, I hate you both. Um, And I want to quickly say that next month's book will be The Ministry of Utmost Happiness by Arundhati Roy. But this month, we are discussing Do Not Become Alarmed by Miley Malloy. Um, And it is thematically congruent to what Dan is talking about. If you guys want to jump in and help me lay out the plot, um, feel free. But basically, this is uh, Malloy's third novel for adults. It's about three pairs of parents and their three pairs of children that meet disaster on a cruise to Central America. Um, And the kids aged 6 to 15 are abducted by two drug dealing brothers and broken free by the cleaning woman Maria, whose teenage son Oscar gets entwined in the story, too in a movie-ready series of escapades, including a train robbery, a car chase, and a search for lost medicine, they try to make their way back to their parents who are freaking out and turning on each other and generally threatening to return to a state of nature. Um, (laughs) Do you guys have um, additional um, ads there? I would just say that, you know, your description of it as movie-ready feels apt, uh, almost to a fault here. I mean, this book sometimes felt to me like uh, an outline for uh, a mid-level summer blockbuster that we'll be watching in 2019, uh, much more than it did like a novel that I enjoyed reading in the summer of 2017. It seemed like a treatment in advance of a script uh, more than anything else. Uh, interesting. I The only thing I'll add is that as the hyper-targeted perfect audience for this book uh as someone who in fact read it on a beach in costa rica while i didn't know what my children were doing um (laughs) i liked it quite a bit more than jacob uh even though i i didn't love it quite as much as i've loved other of miley malloy's books um one thing that 
I was wondering as I closed this book was whether it had an argument. And the reason that I wondered that is because it seems to have a lot of the ingredients of a social critique. Um, you've got these privileged families um, in a developing country um, and sort of confronting their whiteness and their privilege. And uh, you would think that this would be sort of a ripe um place for satire. And instead, I wasn't sure that she was very judgmental at all. Um, and so, yes, I guess I just want to pose that question to you guys. Do you think that there's like a prevailing argument or a theme of this book that she wants to get across? It is a subject that's ripe for satire, but Miley Malloy, I think as a writer, is pretty congenitally allergic to satire. That's not her style. And I and in general, I find that her writing is is concerned to maybe a fault with empathizing with all of its characters in a way that I think often short circuits topics that other writers might find useful for satire. Um, she certainly doesn't let her characters off the hook and all of the parents, particularly, and even some of the kids um the American ones, at least, behave in ways that are absurd or that expose their foolishness or privilege. But she doesn't have the sort of harsh eye uh, or willingness to judge them herself that right. would make for like a really primo satirical novel. And so to me, the novel had less of an argument exactly and more of a self-awareness uh, and an unwillingness to be trapped in um the kinds of tropes that a story like this might otherwise get trapped in which is to say it's not making an argument about white people in central america but it's not unaware that there's an argument to be made about white people in central america mm -hmm. yeah in in that sense and in several others I, I often felt though that this was a novel that was waiting for more um i rarely had a a sense of place uh, in this book, uh, of where they were. I mean, it, it's they start when, when we first meet them. They're on a cruise. These these families and their children, uh, and cruises are sort of notoriously uh, uh, nowhere. Uh, even when they're going somewhere, um, the, the the cruise environment is the same everywhere. And, and there was some way in which the whole book felt that way to me. Whether they were uh, whether we were looking at the children uh, imprisoned in the house of this these drug dealing brothers, uh, or uh, the families in the capital of this this country uh, trying to find their children, um, nothing really felt flushed out here. Nothing really felt full, or or at least fully realized, um, and that left me feeling kind of adrift uh, throughout. What uh, what felt specifically unrealized to you, like the characters, or you said the sense of place. Um, it didn't, there were not enough details um, to give you like that Costa Rican flavor. Yeah, I mean, uh, it may have been uh, the lack of, of details, a lack of description. Uh, it may uh, also, though, have, have been um, the lack, as you sort of suggest, uh, of, of characterization. I mean, I, I don't know if that would be your point or your observation about it. Um, but to me, this, this group of children was almost entirely without specific qualities that distinguished them. Uh, they were just a kind of a group of miscellaneous imperiled ragamuffins. 
uh, at all points. Um, and to the extent that they had characteristics, it was like a sort of single characteristic uh, for each one. Uh, there was the, you know, the sort of sexy teenager, the the one with diabetes, the one with a, you know, who loves a pet bunny. Uh, and beyond that, uh, I, I didn't really come to understand them as people, which was problematic in part because for, for me, at least as a reader, because, um, Malloy is constantly shifting from chapter to short chapter. And some of these chapters are just a page or two long, I think, uh, is constantly shifting from one vantage to the next. Um, but as we shifted vantages, as we shifted perspectives, I, I wasn't really seeing the story differently. Uh, I wasn't seeing it through eyes that had, uh, to me at least, any kind of specificity. I mean, I, I don't know. Did that did that constant shifting of perspective work for you two? Uh, I could not disagree with you more strongly, Jacob. Like, <laughs> there are a lot of things in this book that uh, didn't quite sit right with me, but a lack of specificity to the characters was not one of them. Each one of them felt incredibly specific to me. The six adults, the six adults on the cruise whose eyes we see things through several of the other adults and even the kids like really had distinct personalities and ways of speaking um which you know from penny who's like a little bit bossy and a little bit of a star and wants to take charge and therefore gets in over her head to marcus who as they say early in the novel is not exactly on the spectrum but not exactly off the spectrum either and who is very sort of relentlessly focused on small problems and hyper focused on his on a crush um you know i found them i i have always found with malloy's storytelling and in this book in as much as in any of her books that a deep specificity about the points of views of her character is has never been a problem for me I don't disagree with you that the setting felt a little bit sketchy sometimes, although I will say that like her portrait of life on a cruise ship uh, is essentially perfect, at least as it's viewed by parents, which is essentially, hmm. you know, a, a break from their children that you don't recognize until you set foot on the ship, how desperately you need it. Um, but I agree that like a lot of the Central American locations played a little bit interchangeably. There are some lush forests. There's a beautiful beach. There's an anonymous house. There's an anonymous hotel. There's an anonymous embassy. But to me, that read as an intentional decision because we are seeing those places through the eyes of people for whom they are anonymous locales. The four parents, the four American parents who are in that hotel while they're waiting for their, for news of their kids, they don't give a shit what that hotel is like. And, so that read to me as a distinct choice, whereas places that they were invested in or cared about, the place where their kids were lost out in the jungle, the beach where it happened, the cruise ship that they really loved, like those places were dense with detail uh, because we were seeing them through the eyes of people who were really hyper-focused on them. What did you make of those changes of perspective, Katie? Yeah, well, I don't know. I kind of I'm tempted to take a Miley Malloyan um, sort of like not coming down on the side, um, God's eye view, and like split the difference here. Um, I I did find the portraits to be really psychologically acute. Like I understood why Nora would fear that her two children were like too well behaved because they had been coached to sort of blend into a privileged white school and they're biracial and like the the concerns and the thoughts that crossed their minds felt very 
grounded and real um, and compelling to me. I do think that the chapters are interesting because although they're ostensibly presenting uh, a lot of different perspectives, there was a uniformity of tone there. Like they don't think the same thoughts, but they think in the same they think in the same ways, like their their mental voices kind of all all sound the same. Um, and I didn't mind that because I thought actually that sort of through line, that consistency made the book easier to process and to read. Um, otherwise, it might have been too chaotic. Um, but I, I can see how that would give the impression of sort of an undifferentiated uh, cast, although I don't think that they were, in fact, under, undifferentiated. It's true that we're given a lot of different characters, but the voice is essentially Miley Malloy's voice, even right. for characters for whom she's making sort of a vague attempt at putting on a slightly different voice like Naomi or Maria, um, they still sort of observe the same things about people and places and and are concerned with the same issues. Maybe this comes back to Katie's earlier question then about uh, whether or not this book has an argument. Um, even if it doesn't have an argument, um, I do wonder what the reason for uh, this sort of scattershot, constantly shifting, and yet somehow also sort of flat or consistent uh, approach is. Um, why is it important that we get all of these different perspectives, these different voices, uh, if, if they are different in their voices? Well, I think this is where I would sort of invoke Laura Miller, who wrote a great review of this book on Slate. Um, and she seemed to think that one of the themes that Malloy is playing with is sort of the intersection of happenstance and character. So the idea that your fate is kind of this mix of your own qualities and chance. And I think that you can demonstrate that with like a larger case, uh, a larger sample size um, better. So she has a lot of uh, characters who are, you know, determined in their futures are determined by their personalities and by what happens to them. And it's kind of interesting and fun to watch their personalities play out into in their contexts and sort of predict what happens and see where you're surprised and see where you're right. Um, I, I actually found that sort of puzzle box uh, aspect to the book pretty satisfying. It makes the book move like really fast. And yeah. <laughs> And pretty painlessly, like when I explained to my wife what this book was about, uh, like many parents, we are both pretty congenitally uh, allergic to stories of kids in peril. Right? We like we have cut essentially cut those kinds of stories out of our uh, aesthetic lives. Um, but this one, for good or ill, and I'm and I'm not really sure what the answer is, was not hard to get through. In part, that's because it bounces so quickly from position to position to position and moves so fluidly that I never really even had time to like dwell in like the horribleness of the situation. In part, it's also because this might sort of get at some of the other issues that are worth talking about at this in this book that I trusted pretty much from the get go that this was not the kind of book where the little kids were going to die. You know, yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah, the, right. The kids were going to be in like true danger. It's the older kids, the ones who are closest to adulthood suffer and the non-American ones suffer. Um, but the but the little kids are sort of 
put into perilous situations, but are but I never truly got the sense that something ho- true, actually horrible, was going to happen them to them, and I was going to have to face that situation. And yeah. I don't know if that's a strength or a weakness of the book, really. I had a similar feeling uh, at the start, which is why when horrible things do actually happen to the older kids, um, especially to uh, Isabel, um, uh, who's 14, um, and who is brutally and pretty graphically raped um, midway through the book, um, when that scene happens, I kept uh, expecting the book to to pull back. I kept expecting uh, uh, the rapist's brother, George, to come into the room and shoot him in the head or something. And the fact that it didn't... Uh, um, was surprising, not surprisingly intense, was intense in part because uh, I had sort of come in for whatever reason with the expectation that things were going to turn out okay uh, in this book. Um, it was a rougher moment um, for the expectations that that I had brought to it um, than it would have been otherwise. And it was, I think, a rough moment no matter what in this book. Yeah, I, I just want to quickly come back to what Dan said about the pace of the book, like the movement and the hurdle of it, because I think that's like an essential quality. And I think maybe unfortunately, it gives the impression sometimes that the book is kind of skimming over darkness, like it's going so fast that you can't quite linger in what would be the really tragic or scary um, elements of of the situation. And maybe that is good. And that's a sop thrown to the parents who just couldn't bear um, I, you know, on the other end of the spectrum is like a little life, which just like drags you through all of the misery and you just can't, you're drowning in it. But, um, here there, there was a kind of skimming quality, which I appreciated, but I also felt like I was getting off easy. And maybe Jacob, that could account for your lack of an emotional connection to some of the characters. If you didn't feel like you were spending enough time with them. I'm sold in many ways by the points that, that, you and Dan have made that that maybe these characters are more um, fully realized than I've given the book credit for, um, but I still have this feeling that the whole of it was kind of perfunctory, and I, and I do think maybe as you're suggesting that that is because we move through events so quickly that we never really get to feel deeply uh, what it's like to be in any of these situations that our various characters are in, what it's, what it's like to have your kids missing, what it's like, uh, to, um, uh, be the missing kid in part because we don't sit with anyone for more than a few pages at a stretch. Uh, and because we don't sit with anyone for more than a few pages at a stretch, uh, I don't really know what it's like to be in this six odd day situation over time. It all feels a little unreal to me, maybe because of that. Can we maybe return to the rape I know that's that's always a good proposition. Um, but Dan, I think you mentioned in an email that you had thoughts on it. Uh, yeah, that was a scene. It's interesting. I mean, I responded to it essentially as Jacob did with a lot of surprise um, mm-hmm. that a, a book that it sort of that it sort of committed itself to lightness in its treatment of peril gave us in the middle of it a pretty graphic moment of peril. Um, and, and not only that, but a moment that seemed of almost everything in this book, the most familiar from 10 million other TV shows and books and stories. And, uh, and like the thing that in, like 
it seemed like the one thing in this book that the bad, shitty, stupid version of this book would have had. And that's not to say that it wasn't realistic. It certainly is something that could have and would have happened to that character in that circumstance. But at the same time, it just made me a little bit depressed that like this book felt the need to include this scene uh, in a book that otherwise seemed essentially devoted to the notion of telling kind of an adventure yarn with emotional underpinnings, but one in which uh, one in which the darker aspects of the story are tend to be skimmed over. And maybe that's just me like being churlish or maybe it's me being prudish or maybe, you know, it's me being insensitive. But at the same time, when the scene, when it became clear how the scene was developing, I sort of inwardly groaned like, ah, like this is a trope that I don't know that this particular story needs. But am Mm -hmm. I alone in that? You know, for all my frustrations with the novel, I, there was one moment with um, with Isabel's parents uh, as they're grappling with um, this image that showed up on Instagram uh, of of Isabel um, after after this this scene, um, where they're realizing that their other son, if he had been there, um, wouldn't would wouldn't have let it happen, or that something must have happened to him to, to let it happen, or or something. And, and as they're grappling with their own uncertainty, but also their certainty about what's happened to not one, but two of their children in, in the moment of contemplating pretty clear evidence to them, uh, of, of this awful thing. That was one of those rare moments for me when the kind of vertiginous structure, uh, of, um, the book shifting perspectives really, clicked uh, and I saw what this book was capable of doing. Um, is, does that make the scene of, of the rape worth it? I, I, I don't even know. I don't know. Um, does it make it fit into this book? I don't know that either, but um, it did show me uh, in that, that later moment, that moment of reflection, that moment of horror uh, about something horrible, um, what Malloy was, was capable of, of pulling off here. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, um, this scene was kind of like a fault line in in between different genres. Like I thought, like Dan, that this was an adventure yarn. I really like that phrase um, because it seems pretty apt for a lot of this book. And yet there are these moments where she kind of lets in the icy breath of the void. Like you get a lot more darkness than you bargained for. And I think that there's something interesting going on with genre in this book where you think it's one thing and then the bottom is sort of ripped out from under you in the same way that these characters experience their own lives inverted and and turned, you know, um, turned horrible at a moment's notice. Um, and I think the rape did a good job of making that point, but I can also see the Coise argument that this is the most cliched bad thing that could happen to a young, beautiful girl. Um, so again, splitting the difference. So I think that that genre fault is interesting because it strikes me that the book is kind of two different genres, but it's very consciously. And I assume intentionally split by culture for the American Hmm. characters. It's an adventure yarn where the, the kids 
have bad things happen to them but are never truly in danger, where the parents go through paroxysms of self-doubt, but everything ends up okay, almost sort of lightly comic by the end with, um, with like the kids trying to blackmail them for a puppy because they got mm-hmm. kidnapped. For the Central American and South American characters, it's a sort of dire, vicious thriller in which they several of them lose their lives in horrible ways. Uh, right. And holes are left in their lives that can never be remedied. And maybe if the book has an argument, that's the argument. I mean, it's made, I guess, sort of semi-explicitly by the book's final lines, which we might want to read at some point. But it's clearly making some kind of point about the way that uh, Americans experience these countries, even not in times of dire peril, uh, and the way people who live in developing nations experience can experience life in those nations as opposed to the way Americans do. And sort of thinking of it as a divide in genres is a useful way of, of, of thinking of the different ways these characters experience this exact same story. Yeah. And one blueprint for the type of book that this could be is Treasure Island, right? And, um, maybe this is, maybe this is too much in the weeds, but maybe it's not a coincidence that Penny's name is Penny. She's got this tie to the sort of, uh, <laughs> the urtext of sort of colonial adventure stories. Like you, you can't quite have a traditional adventure story without, you know, Robinson Crusoe, these white British, uh, characters that go to far flung lands and see all the exotic birds and, um, meet the locals. And, you know, it's, it's a problematic genre. And I think that maybe by giving us this, uh, sort of two, two faced book, she is, um, interrogating that genre. So I like that point, Dan. Yeah. I, I find myself thinking, having heard all that, and I don't want to take away from this or take us away rather from this point about genre, which I think is really excellent. Um, and which makes me as many of the things that you've both have said, admire this book a lot more than I did coming into this conversation. But I find myself thinking about what these kids and their, their mothers were, were going to do in the jungle in the first place, which is that they were uh, on their way to a zip line. And, and in some ways this whole experience that at least the, uh, North American characters have is an experience of a zip line, you know, where you you feel that horrible pit uh, of terror in your stomach as you're going down, but you know you're strapped in uh, and that you're going to land uh, okay. I don't know that they know that at every point in the book, of course, but but that ends up being what their experience was that uh, adventurous terror that is also always a secure um, and. Uh, I do wonder, though, um, and this too comes around to, to Katie's initial question, though, whether the book is really interrogating that fundamental security that they have or, uh, or or whether it's just sort of a fact that's in the background here. Does it have anything to say about that distinction of experiences between that of the Central American characters and the North American ones? So I don't know that it's backgrounded. I mean, it seemed really foregrounded to me to the extent that like the, the final moment we see of these families in Central America is Benjamin thinking about the fall of Saigon um, and Americans, you know, being airlifted out of uh, an incredibly chaotic and difficult situation. He and his family had escaped, leaving chaos behind them. It was the American way. And I mean, that's the closest that Miley Malloy is going to come to a sort of harsh satirical judgment. Mm -hmm. And it comes in the voice of one of the characters who is somewhat harshly 
judging himself yet is still grateful for the opportunity that he knows he's gotten um so i mean it's there definitely and just because it's not just because it's not hammered to me at least doesn't mean that it's not underpinning almost everything that happens in the story early on in the book um there's that moment between Liv and benjamin um in their uh cruise ship cabin where she's talking about how she just feels like you know at some point it, you know god will look down at and see how lucky she's been and she'll get hit by the bus and he goes what bus the bus that just goes around hitting people and <laughs> she goes yeah the car the karmic bus and the notion of the karmic bus as being always lurking there for privileged privileged white people is a really fascinating one and it seems to me that one of the lessons of the book is that in most circumstances if you are a wealthy white person even when you get hit by the karmic bus you end up fine and other mm-hmm. people take the brunt of the damage yeah and just to elaborate on that quote a little bit um the karmic the karmic bus had mowed her down uh one of the mothers thinks when she when the kids are actually uh abducted uh she was being punished for living in a false world spongy and insulated from the reality around her for living in a house with an alarm system in a neighborhood where the only latinos were gardeners and day laborers so i think we're meant to i mean i don't think we're meant to swallow that without a grain of salt i think that we are meant to think you know that's a little bit grandiose or there's no rhyme or reason to uh the way these things unfold but yeah that is one character making that argument too yeah although you know and and this is not necessarily a fault in the book but i don't know that any lessons are learned uh, in that respect i mean uh she may feel that the karmic bus had 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 mowed her down in that moment but you know the the lesson doesn't really stick around um the bus moved on no, and she got up all. and brushed herself off yeah, and so the question then is, what do readers take away mm-hmm. from it? And this is a this is an area in which I do think the structure and lightness of the novel probably plays against its goals in some way, which is to say, this is like a really important point to walk away from this novel in. It's to walk away from this novel with for someone like me who is right now a privileged white person in a central American country, like trying to figure out how I relate to the people who live here. It's very acutely on my mind. And so that was the main thing I sort of dug out of this book as I was reading it, but it does move so fluidly and has so many elements of sort of traditional, easy to digest adventure yarn. And Miley Malloy is so sort of effortless of a writer throughout this book that it's I think it's really easy to read this book and come away with none of that stuff. And maybe this is a case where not that not that this is a strength of hers necessarily, but like a, a less light touch and a little heavier of a hammer might have been worthwhile. Yeah, she's a very charming writer. Um, that was the word that kept coming up uh, for me. It's like, oh, that's a charming line. This is a charming observation. That's a charming bit of dialogue. I certainly don't think that it is her responsibility to to impart some kind of moral, but insofar as the novel is constantly playing in that territory or gesturing toward it, uh, at least, um, it is a little odd that it doesn't come to such a point more 
directly. Do, I mean, is that why Noemi is there to give us this this less privileged perspective, uh, at least for a few scenes? That's how I read her. Yeah, and and in in that sense of sort of light tokenism, there's a a certain mm. problem with her appearance in that she serves a plot purpose and Choi, her half uncle who's taking her serves a plot purpose from a thematic standpoint. She's both useful and like a little bit beside the point. Mm-hmm. Right. She's supposed to broaden our perspectives in the same way that this cruise is supposed to broaden the Americans perspectives. Um, I was also interested in the sort of, uh, different treatment of the Central American characters and the South American characters. So the Argentinians don't get off scot-free, but they're also treated a little bit differently, and I think it's a class difference um, than Chui and Noemi, whose names I hope I'm not butchering. Um, and Maria and Oscar yeah. and George even and all those characters. Yeah, the the sort of, the very specific differentiation um between those two, those sets of characters from different parts of the world was really fascinating to me. Um, mm-hmm. And one strength I thought of the novel was the way that it glancingly, but effectively, I thought, gave us a real sense of the way that Gunter and Camila, the Argentinian parents, saw themselves at times as allies of uh, Liv and Benjamin and Nora and Raymond, the American parents, at times as allies of the Costa Ricans with whom they were all dealing, and at times as sort of free agents who had Mm. no one they could count on. Uh, I thought that was really interesting and unexpected, uh, and and I enjoyed the brief sections we got from their perspectives. Yeah. Um, Dan, I also want to tap your uh, into your expertise as a mom and dad are fighting former host and founder um, and ask if you think there's like a philosophy of parenting embedded in this book. There's a perfect synopsis in this book of essentially the philo- the most popular philosophy of contemporary American parenting that exists right now, which is it's on page 18 of this book. And I'm going to read it because it's so perfect. Um, it's live. Uh, who, who is the character we're with the most often in this book. Um, and she's talking with Benjamin. They're on the cruise. And uh, it's the same section as the karmic bus section. And she's talking about how much she worries about everything. Uh, and Benjamin asks, oh, Benjamin says, all my dreams have come true. And she says, that doesn't make you think we don't deserve our luck, that it'll all be taken away? No. She stared at the ceiling. It does me. Well, do you think worrying helps? Yes, she said, because the disaster will be the thing you don't expect. So you just have to expect everything. So she's talking about their lives broadly, but it's also an incredibly vivid description of the parenting style that I think almost every middle to upper class American parent engages in, myself included, um, and that and that is feels in the moment incredibly like stultifying and uh and unhappy making yet feels like it's the only thing we could ever do for our children because they are of course the most important things in the world yeah that uh they're so uh cosseted and so anxious uh the parents like they are they themselves have so much privilege and they're also so inordinately 
terrified of the worst. Um, it, it's like it's it's kind of a delicious paradox in general, and that's one of the things that makes this book um, so perfectly positioned to be a satire, even though Molloy doesn't seem to want to be a satirist. Um, but yeah, no, I also I also love that um, line. But I wonder. On one hand, you could see her sort of pushing back against or, or or criticizing like helicopter parenting because you get lines about how the kids might be too soft to deal with what's coming their way and they don't know what to do. But on the other hand, it's inattentive parents who get them into this situation um, because Liv falls asleep and Nora goes off to bird watch uh, with Pedro, uh, the yeah, guy. she does. <laughs> So I don't know. I thought that that was like an interesting twist that it wasn't sort of the helicopter parenting that got them in this mess. It was like good old negligent parenting. Yeah, but there's the scene earlier on the boat where two of the kids get locked out on the balcony. Um, yeah. Do also did intensive parenting where it basically works out okay, which was a reminder to me that that no matter how helicopter you are, there are going to be moments where you're not paying attention and where something bad might happen. And mm. so in some respects, the fact that it was their inattention that caused the disaster was not did not seem to me to be as judgmental as it might otherwise be. It seemed like one of the messages of the novel, at least, and one of the things that people sort of say over and over again is, you never fucking know. Like, you never yeah. know what weird ass thing is going to be the thing that causes a crisis. And so maybe the argument of the book is it's like not worth worrying about every second of every day, mm. um, at least if you're an American parent with a lot of money yeah. whose kids will end up OK in a story like this. That's and that's where the, the title comes from, right? Uh, huh. From a, a, a sign in an elevator. I think am I remembering right at uh, uh, Sebastian's endocrinologist's office, maybe the hospital? I think that's uh, right. Yeah. But the the sign that says, you know, uh, I'm not going to pull it up here. But, uh, you know, if the doors stick, don't become alarmed. Just press the alarm button. Uh, and that <laughs> that paradox of. Um, attitude and action um, that is demanded in that moment um, is something that that resonates throughout the novel. I, I I was, for all my reservations about certain elements, wholly charmed by that by that sign uh, and uh, and and its suggestion uh, for the sort of structure of the text as a whole. Yeah, and I also like like the the innocence of the kid. I think it was Penny who points out that's like that's so messed up. That doesn't make any sense. And there there were a bunch of uh, moments in this book that just were great at giving you a child's eye view and sort of sending up the absurdities of adult life um, through these kids, which is something that I always look for if you're going to write a book with kids as central characters. So that good job there. She's really, really good at kids. I mean, so she also has written a couple of middle grade, like true middle grade adventure yarns that starts with a book called The Apothecary. That's like a totally delightful series that also has a bunch of kids who are really well drawn. And you definitely get a sense that she has thought a lot about the way kids process the world and observe it. And that she does that really well in here. But she also does a really good job of showing how parents observe the world. Like there's one moment that will really, really stick with me in this book when when they're at, they rush to the hospital on the coast because the the parents have heard that some of the kids have been returned, but they don't know which ones. Mm. And 
And so Nora and Raymond and Liv and Benjamin all head to the hospital and they're like waiting and waiting and trying to figure out which kids it will be. And they get there and they discover that it's both Liv and Benjamin's kids are the ones who have first been rescued, who first showed up at this hospital. And Penny, you know, goes off on one of her sort of like braggy rants in a way that is totally age appropriate and not unexpected. And Nora, who's grieving and sad and upset and worried and angry just thinks to herself like she has never known a more slappable child and like that shock of like legitimately shocking moment of of parental thought towards kids was like really welcome in this book i thought and really appropriate mm-hmm. to that very difficult scene yeah. yeah that that was a striking moment to me in part because um I, you know some there were some moments where i, I had the feeling that the, i i believed and got that these parents were worried about their kids but i i, I sometimes didn't sense that they had a relationship with their children. Um, but I loved that moment in part because we saw, uh, you know, Nora having a relationship with or an understanding of or, or a, a sense of someone else's child. Um, the characters are real to each other in that moment. And it, it did click um, totally. Yeah. I had a small note about Raymond and the and the race uh, deal, which I thought was kind of interesting, just scenes in which the black father um, is, you know, roped into helping with the investigation. And his first thought is, of course, you're going to question the black man first. And it turns out that they're actually these Costa Rican uh, police officers are actually looking to him for help. Um, and so I thought that was a sly little jab cops before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's an actor. And the jobs were fascinating too. Like there's an engineer, there's a movie developer, people who are used to controlling things and sort of engineering things. So that was, that was also cool. But um, yeah, sly jab at yeah. the United States racial situation. I, I found that moment um, striking, but I also didn't always find Raymond as movie star real. Like it was one of these things that just sort of came in and out of the novel when it was convenient. Uh, and sometimes people treated him like the huge celebrity that he apparently is. And, and there are other times when, uh, when it's just kind of like, he's, he's just a dad. Uh, and I, I, that was, you know, when I think about my frustrations with the characters, uh, Raymond is one that, that comes to mind for me in part because, uh, the novel really never knew what to make of him as far as I could tell. So I didn't get the impression that Raymond was like a super famous dude. I thought he was like mm-hmm. a, a character actor who plays cops, on TV shows like a Joe Morton type or a Bokeem Woodbine or something. Mm-hmm. So I didn't like, it wasn't surprised. Like he's not Mahershala Ali. He hasn't yet had his big breakout role and won an Oscar. He's like a guy who you see on law and order, like in playing 25 different cops. So I sort of bought that and I didn't mind that it, that went in and out of focus from time to time. Um, I do think that his character of most of the adults was one of the least fully fleshed out in part because I think he just got fewer sections than almost all the other parents. Mm-hmm. I don't oh, know if that was Miley, Mal- yeah. Miley Malloy just sort of feeling like, well, you know what, I, it's not my job to speak for this dude, so let me hit a couple of grace notes and get out. Yeah. At the same time, like the deafness with which the that particular moment where the, the Costa Rican cops are looking to him because they saw him play a cop one time mm-hmm. was really sharp and just reminded me of something – that happened to me over and over again through this novel, which is just admiring the effortlessness of Miley Malloy's craft. Like she's just good at all the basic stuff that you have to be good at to make a novel just work and click. Like the 
the ways that in the first 20 pages of this book, she introduced us to 12 different characters, made it clear who they all were, gave us at least the first bits of of understanding into their characters and ways of delineating them from each other and tossed in bits of useful exposition that we would need to know about Sebastian's diabetes, about Marcus's sort of borderline autism, of Penny's bossiness, of Raymond's career, of Liv's career. Like all that stuff is in those first 20 pages and you get through those pages and you don't even know you've learned it all, but it's all there. And like that is like a boring thing to talk about maybe but it's a thing that's so hard to do as a writer and so many writers are so fucking bad at it that it's like such a pleasure to read someone who's so good at it i you know i i'm gonna have to disagree with you there because i actually found that introductory info dump to be kind of uh excessive and clumsy and these characters came at us so quickly in that part that i uh, was still figuring out who some of them were um by later on and yeah i did get the details about uh who has diabetes who might be on the spectrum um but I was still struggling because we had met so many people so quickly to figure out their relationships to one another, uh, who was connected to whom later on. And maybe that's just me being a bad reader, um, but it didn't work for me uh, as a reader one way or the other. I mean, I bet you're not a bad reader. I'm okay. Yeah, that seems that's that's safe to say. I just went into Russian novel mode where I was like, okay, it's going to be a thousand characters with like similar sounding names and uh, sort of. Uh, naughty, thorny relationships with each other. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've been reading this book too, like The Lightning, which couldn't be more different from this, but uh, really uh, remarkable science fiction novel that has a, a hundred gazillion characters. And it does something, it it's creates a similarly large cast uh, much more slowly. So I've been thinking about uh, about that. Maybe maybe I'm just more comfortable with with novels that that let their enormous casts accumulate uh, over time or, or don't worry if we, we can't figure it out because right away, because they know that we'll learn more about that character later on or something. Uh, here, I just got a little kind of confused and frustrated at the beginning, but again, maybe, maybe that's me. Maybe that's my fault. Well, I would like to go around and ask you guys whether you would recommend this book. I would not recommend this book. (laughs) I would recommend that you read another book. I would both recommend this book and recommend that you read another book. Um, it's specifically brought to mind, uh, a writer named Tom Drury, um, who, like Miley Malloy, is deeply interested in the sort of mechanics of fate and good and bad luck, um, mm. but also has the benefit of being like way funnier, like one of the funniest writers I think I've ever read. Um, and so re- maybe read his early, his first novel, The End of Vandalism, uh, or even or one of his later novels, which as he's gone through his career, have gotten a little bit more and more thrillery um, and so more closely resemble this one. Um, but I also would recommend this book like it has velocity and offers a lot of pleasure and I think has its heart in the right place in the sense that it knows there's a place its heart ought to be. And I think it's worth reading. I will say, Dan, you have made a very good case for this book. And if I were only listening to this podcast episode, I would buy your arguments and not Jacob Brogan's. And I would and you'd be book. so angry at me afterwards. <laughs> yeah, because I am <laughs> still Jacob Brogan. So it would be it would be probably pretty disappointing for me. What about you, Katie? I would recommend this book. I certainly would. I was reminded of like Tom Parada and a bunch of just sort of like good natured, warm um, ob- observers of human 
foibles, um, which is probably not the description you would imagine about a, you know, drug dealing, kidnapping uh, book. But uh, yeah, there, there's like a, a generosity to her work that I find really appealing. Um, I don't think it's like the kind of overwrought, very sorry, sort of meticulously uh, crafted lyrical uh, thing that some people would want out of like a literary blockbuster. Um, but I think it does what it sets out to do very um, competently and well. So good job, Miley Malloy, and good job, um, Do Not Become Alarmed. Good job, Kitty Waldman. Good job, Dan Coys. Bad job, Jacob Thanks. Brogan. Good job. Good job, no. Jacob Brogan. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Wrong. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, Katie. Okay. Talk to you next month. That's our show. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. You can also visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. And if you're looking for another great podcast to sink your teeth into, try Slate's Represent, hosted by Aisha Harris. It's a show about representation in the media. Every week, Aisha talks with creators about their work and how representation plays out in today's media landscape. You can find that at slate.com slash represent or wherever you get your podcasts. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And thanks for the assist, Afim Shapiro. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. For Dan Coyce and Jacob Brogan, I'm Katie Waldman. Join us next month for The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, a novel by Arundhati Roy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.